Hi, this is Henry Proclaim with Dr. John Vonville. You know, it's super easy to feel that you're all alone in the Christian journey, and just as easy to feel alone in the call for sexual purity. Does Scripture have hope and answers for us? Absolutely. We're not alone, and the Gospel has hope for us. We're in a series called Do You Not Know? And here's part two of The Kingdom of God and Sexual Purity. Third, what does the kingdom of God have to do with our daily life of sexual purity? And here's the point. What does all that doctrine have to do with my daily life in struggling with sexual purity? Here it is. The kingdom of God is two aspects in our current day, and Paul teaches them both in 1 Corinthians. It is already come, but it's not yet consummated. And Paul here in verses 9 and 10 is talking about the perfection, the consummation of God's kingdom. But back in chapter 4, he's talking about, the, he says in chapter 4, verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has already come now. So what does the kingdom of God already but not yet have to do with practicality of sexual purity? Here's the point. Because we are already citizens of God's kingdom, washed, sanctified, justified, we are expected and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in a new way that is characterized by righteousness, not unrighteousness. Simply put, Paul is saying this, the law sends us to the gospel for our justification. And the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of living. The gospel is given to free us and to empower us and to recreate us into saints and citizens of the kingdom of God so that we live in willing, joyful, grateful obedience to that king and his moral standards in his kingdom. And God's moral standards in his kingdom are expressed, his righteousness is expressed through his law. He's simply saying to the Corinthians, because you have been made a citizen of the kingdom of God, act like it. That's what he's teaching. Be who you are. Stop suing one another. Stop being unjust towards one another. Stop living in sexual immorality. Be who you are. But the reason they were not being who they were is because they failed to know the basic facts of the kingdom of God and how the gospel related to the implications of their daily life. And so Paul is teaching them then about the kingdom of God. And so this brings up the fourth question, who are the people excluded from the kingdom of God? Who are they? Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10, look at verses 9 and 10. He gives an illustrative, not an exhaustive list of the unrighteous, that is the unjustified. Those people who are not right with God, therefore, are excluded from the kingdom of God. Now, each vice that we look at is simply an illustration of a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. This is what it looks like. They illustrate behaviors of people who are outside of the kingdom of God and who live in open rebellion against the king and his kingdom. What these vices do is that they illustrate the culture of Corinth. 
They illustrate the culture of America. They illustrate the fallen culture of Corinth in which the Corinthian church and our church is living and from which the Corinthian church and people in our church have been saved from. And this is what Paul's doing. He is issuing a chilling warning that there are certain behaviors that cannot be a part of faithful Christian living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. There are certain behaviors, Paul says, that God's law demarcates that cannot reflect the ethical standards of righteousness in the kingdom of God. So, let's look at this list, and we'll just go through it fairly quickly because it's pretty self-explanatory. We'll just talk through it. In fact, he's already given the list back in chapter 5, verses 10 10 and 11. He just adds three more vices to the list in chapter 6 to give further illustrations. But nonetheless, let's go through the list. Here's the list. First, heading the list is sexual immorality, the sexually immoral. It's like an umbrella term. It's the violation of the seventh commandment. And the reason this vice heads Paul's list is because it is the problem he's addressing in this particular context. Not because this sin is worse than any other sin, because he lists a lot of different sins. It's just because this happens to be the sin he's addressing. What is sexual immorality? Let me define it for you. Sexual immorality is any form of sexual behavior outside the bounds of monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage bond. Sexual immorality is a term that incorporates premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual practice. Just a big umbrella term that incorporates it all. And Paul's saying that the sexual ethic of God's kingdom is clear. What is the sexual ethic of God's kingdom? What does his law require for the citizens of the kingdom of God? There are two. Abstinent singleness or heterosexual marriage, period. Now, after sexually immoral, Paul lists idolatry. So look at idolaters. Idolaters refers to anybody who places their trust in anyone or anything other than the one true God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and personally through Jesus Christ. It's idolatry. This is a violation of the first commandment. Now, it's interesting that idolatry follows sexually immoral people in this vice list because idolatry and sexual immorality were the problems in the Corinthian church. For example, in chapter 5, Paul devotes the whole chapter to sexual immorality. Chapter 6, Paul devotes almost the whole chapter to sexual immorality. And then in chapter 7, Paul follows up with a third chapter on sexual practice. So he devotes three whole chapters to this problem. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, he addresses the whole problem of idolatry in violating the first commandment. There's a second reason idolatry follows sexual immorality, because in Jewish thinking, idolatry and sexual immorality were closely joined together. They always went together. For example, if you look at the Old Testament, um, infidelity to a spouse was used as a metaphor for infidelity or adultery toward God. The Old Testament prophets frequently symbolized God's relationship to Israel as a husband and wife relationship. So if you read the book of Hosea, for example, 
Hosea represents Israel's sins, especially idolatry as adultery. Just read Hosea chapter 4, the whole chapter, and you'll see how the prophets address this issue. Now, certainly sexual immorality is one of the most visible idols of our sex-obsessed culture, is it not? The, the idol of sex is so big in our culture, it's almost unmentionable, and, it's, and it also was in the time of the apostle Paul in Corinth. And so that's why he puts them together. Second, third, look what he lists. He lists adulterers. Adulterers, you know what adultery is. It doesn't take any elaboration. Adultery is simply married persons who violate their vows and engage in extramarital sexual practice. It's a violation of the seventh commandment. Now, following heterosexual sin, now Paul addresses homosexual sin. It's very controversial in our culture. I'm going to be very careful about what I say here, but I'm going to say exactly what Paul says and nothing else. Look how the ESV translates men who practice sexual immorality. This is a violation like adultery, like any other sexual immoral practice. It is a violation of the seventh commandment. Now, the ESV's translation, men who practice homosexuality, is actually two separate Greek words. Now, the reason the ESV translators translate these two Greek words in one descriptive phrase is for ease of public discourse on this subject. Because if you study these words in context of how the Apostle Paul used them, they are exceedingly graphic. Even though the ESV translate these for ease of public discourse and expositing Paul's meaning, greater precision is needed. So let me give you some precision without elaboration, okay? First, the Holy Spirit, through this inspired word, uses the Greek word malakoi, which literally means soft ones. And the malakoi soft ones were men, effeminate males, who play the sexual role of females. And so with this term, Paul is graphically referring to the passive partner in homosexual sexual practice in Corinth. It's exceedingly graphic. Second, Paul uses the word arsenikoitai. This word literally means male betters. And it can be translated males who take other males to bed. Now with this term... Paul is referring specifically to men in Corinth who are active partners in homosexual sexual practice. So you have a passive and you have an active graphic partner described by the Apostle Paul, which Paul calls unrighteousness. These pairings of these terms need just a little bit of clarification, not elaboration. Let me just clarify this. Paul is speaking about... Same-sex sexual practice, not same-sex, not natural, but unnatural love. What was this culture like? Listen to what he says. Fourteen out of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced unnatural vice. At the time of Paul's writing, Nero, who was the emperor here, had taken a boy called Sporus and had him castrated and married him with a full marriage ceremony, took him home in a procession to his palace and lived with him as his wife. This is the culture that Paul is talking about that the Corinthians have been saved out of. 
He says, at the time of Paul's writing, in the early church's existence, the world was lost to shame. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. The kingdom of God and his ethics are, are totally and squarely at odds and positioned against the cultural norms of fallen culture. And so we in the church say, welcome to the kingdom of God. Now, following these sexual sins, Paul also lists, look what he lists next. He lists thieves. Thieves refers to robbery, and it actually belongs to chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, where they were being unjust and suing each other in courts. Theft is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, and William Barclay, again, he notes that theft was widespread in the ancient world. Houses were easily broken into in the ancient world. And if you study Roman law, the commentators say that Roman, the strictness of the punishment of Roman law illustrates how bad the problem had become in Greco-Roman culture. Look at the next one. It's greedy Greedy, this vice speaks of the state of desiring to have more than is one's due. It's covetousness. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Greed and thievery go hand in hand, and it works like this. Greedy people are covetous people and desire that which belongs to others. And thieves are those who act on their desires of greed and take. So covetousness and greed is the origin of theft. Not only does greed apply to rich and poor people alike, but a a greedy person is selfish. They always demand more and more. They treat other people as objects for self-gratification. Now, that fits nicely in the context of sexual immorality because greed applies not just to money, but it also applies to sexuality, a selfish desire that is never satisfied. So you're always trying to treat other people as objects for your own self-gratification. That's greed, and it violates It violates the Eighth Commandment. Look at the next one, drunkards. Now, drunkards is self-evident. What is drunkards? It doesn't need much explanation. Drunkards is excessive, uncontrolled drinking. Drunkenness has no place in the kingdom of God. No place. In in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul joins it with unrestrained license, profligacy, riotous living, out-of-control behavior, The point Paul's making is that drunkards throw off every kind of restraint of modesty and shame and indulge, he says in chapter 5, in things too shameful to even speak of. Drunkards do things in their drunken state that they would never do if they're in their right mind. And Paul says that's absolutely forbidden in the kingdom of God. That is not the righteous standard for the kingdom of God. And astonishingly, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Drunkenness, by way of selfish indulgence and indifference to others in the church, marked the Corinthian church at the Lord's Supper. Now, can you imagine if Paramount Church all showed up drunk for the Lord's Supper? The Apostle Paul would be saying, okay, time out. (laughs) We have a serious problem here. So it's no wonder that Paul issues these sobering warnings of judgment in chapter 11 against drunkards at the abuse of the Lord's table. Look what he lists next, revilers. Revilers are people who are characterized by verbally abusive speech. 
Revilers are people who verbally abuse others with their speech. These are people who are characterized as backbiters, slanderers, gossips. They twist people's words. They condemn others. They join in conversations about the failures of other people to kill them. They're people who are characterized by lying and falsehood. These are revilers. Now, take note here. You need to take note that God does not consider the sins of the tongue lightly. He puts it in the same list with sexual immorality and condemns it and says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. How that would make such a difference in the church if believers would consider their prayer requests and concerns as gossip and keep it to themselves and go to the source. Sinful speech betrays the sin of one's heart. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. Look what Paul lists next. He lists swindlers. Swindlers swindlers speak of people who take advantage of others to promote their own financial gain. They gain finance by extortion, false advertising, deceit. For example, here's a modern-day example, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff would make Paul swindler's list. He was the swindler of swindlers in American history. He stole from people by deception and extortion. This is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Now, these are the vice lists. Now, all of, these, all of these sins define unrighteousness that exclude men from the kingdom of God. Paul is not referring to momentary lapses. Paul is not referring to momentary failures. He is warning people against who live in open rebellion, continual open rebellion against God and have no inward delight to keep God's law whatsoever. And so look, as we reflect, as we reflect upon these vice lists, they all share a common characteristic. And here it is. And this is the problem Paul was addressing that I told you about. This is the common characteristic. Selfish indulgence, self-will, arrogance, pride, rather than through faith in the gospel and submission to God's law, living according to the ethics of God's kingdom. That's what all of these vices have in common. So as we reflect upon this, let's remember three things as we finish this up this morning. Here's the three things that I think we need to remember. First, Paul is saying judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. What is judgment in this passage? This is what it is. It is exclusion from the kingdom of God. Nothing can be worse than than to be excluded from the blessing of God and to live under his covenant curse. This, this warning that Paul gives is real. It's not a trivial matter. We shouldn't treat it as something light. The urgency of Paul's tone ought to make a deep impression upon us. He is warning this to the church. There are some people in the church who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't be deceived. Let all who wish to live unrighteous lives be warned to reject the rule and kingship of Christ and to live in open rebellion against his kingdom is disastrous. Judgment is certain. The kingdom of God will be excluded from you. Second, we have to guard against the tendency to be deceived by sin. Look what Paul says as we finish. He says, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul's concern is for the Corinthians to stop deceiving themselves. Listen, he's saying, Corinthians, if you think, if you really think that gospel liberty is to be equated with lawless license, think again. Righteousness is the fundamental characteristic of the kingdom of God, and those whose lives are characterized by unrighteousness as a settled way of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, regardless of their profession. David Pallison says, if we knew that we were deceived, we would not be deceived, but we are deceived unless awakened through God's truth and spirit. Paul's seeking to awaken us through his truth and spirit. He's seeking to awaken us. Do not be deceived. Sin is intrinsically deceitful. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin blinds us while preserving, David Pallison says, while preserving the illusion of seeing. You think you see and you really don't, but you're deceived. Paul says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Sin is deceiving, and it makes temptation much more difficult. Sin presents itself to us as pleasing, as good, as desirable, and so we can easily be deceived into thinking that, hey, well, I can freely indulge in this sin and not undergo the sentence of judgment that Paul talks about. I'll be okay. But listen, Paul's saying, if you could just summarize it, he's saying this, deception is disastrous. Do not be deceived. The deceitfulness of sin is seen, John Owen says, that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Paul says, when you begin to be tempted to give in to illicit sexual desire, heed the warning of the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. All who engage seriously persistently in unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't even go down the road. Don't open the door, Paul says. And then third and finally, I think this point is just self-evident. Righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist in the consummation of the kingdom of God. Cannot coexist. If you turn all the way back to Revelation chapter 22, John is giving a picture of what the consummation of the kingdom of God is going to be like. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, he says, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing. And then he says in chapter 22, verse 15, that everyone who is given into the pressures and temptations of the surrounding pagan culture are excluded from the God's kingdom. He says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is altogether righteous. Then righteous exclude themselves, Paul says, from the kingdom of God by their own chosen behavior because God's kingdom ethic or character is characterized by righteousness. And Paul says those who are characterized by this unrighteousness, they're not going to be there. They cannot coexist. And so here we come full circle. Paul is motivating us not to live in fear, but to pursue obedience and sexual purity. So what is he doing? Here's what he's doing. 
The first and basic fact of the kingdom of God, Paul says, the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The ethics of the kingdom yet to come determines the morals by which I live in the kingdom now. That's what Paul says. The ethics of the kingdom to come determines my ethical standards of righteousness now. And then, as we're going to see next week, and in just this amazing change in one verse, verse 11, Paul brings his argument to a conclusion by reaffirming the Corinthian status as citizens of the kingdom of God. And he says to them, some of you were once greedy. Some of you were once, once idolaters. Some of you were once sexually immoral. Some of you were once verbally abusive people. But... Look what he says. Now in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. Therefore, because of who you are, heeding the warning of God's law, act like a citizen of the kingdom of God because God has brought you in grace. He'll be a new person in Christ. Thanks, John. That's The Kingdom of God and Sexual Purity, Part 2. More from the Do You Not Know series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.